Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Alexander Denev, co-author of the book of Alternative Data, and until recently, a lecturer in the subject at Oxford University. Alexander's alternative data experience is vast, and in our conversation, we cover a range of topics and use cases, from how to differentiate causality from correlation, to the use of alternative data to make predictions about the oil price, to the use of survey data in a model, to fair AI and the future of alternative data. As a brief aside, I would like to congratulate previous guest JP Gravit on gaining a new position with Neurovest. So in this episode, I'm joined by Alexander Denev. Thank you very much for joining, Alex. Thank you for having me. You're the second half of a of a kind of bookends, which I began with my first ever episode because you're the second co-author of the book of alternative data. Um, my first was my first episode was with with Saeed Amin. Yes. Um, so it's very nice to to to, to tick that off. Um, Alex, you're steeped in the world of alternative data, and you've got um, a lot of a lot of fingers in pies, and and um, not not least the book itself. Why don't we go all the way back to the beginning and just um, start with with how you first became aware of alternative data? Yeah, uh, so I worked several years in, in IHS market. I was leading the data science team there. And initially I joined as a market guy, but then market joined with, with IHS, which was not a financial data company. So it was something completely new to us. Given that we had had financial data, now we are having all of a sudden also oil and gas data, maritime uh, data, uh, crop data, defense data, military, satellite, all, all, all sorts of data. And, and this merger was kind of a boon. And we started thinking, okay, how we can make the most of, of the merger of these companies? So how we can extract value not uh, in isolation from the different industry verticals, but when we try to merge them. So this was back in uh, uh, 2016. And of course, I had heard about alternative data before, uh, but this was my first practical uh, encounter uh, with alternative data. So what were you, what were you doing before? You've, you've got a kind of mathematical finance background, haven't you? Yeah, uh, I, I worked in, in several banks before that, including European Investment Bank, uh, Societation Now, I uh, was also part of Risk Dynamics, which is part of McKinsey, uh, working in, in, in model validation and stress testing. So my thought, uh, let's say, uh, leadership was centered not on alternative data in the years before, before 2016. I was very much concerned with, with causality. And causality and alternative data, they marry very, marry very well. They're not completely disjointed. And I can explain uh, later why. Uh, but causality is something that's coming to the fore again now. I, I'm intrigued. I want to drill down on that. So causality. So the first thing we we kind of, you, first thing you learn in statistics is that correlation does not equal causality. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's two very different things. How do you approach causality uh, you're a lecturer, so maybe you'll be able to to do this quickly. But how how do you differentiate? What are the, what are the simple differentiations between causality and correlation? How do you know which is one and not the other? Yeah, it's it's the holy grail question, and there is even a say. 
I would rather discover one cause or law rather than be king of Persia. Uh, a famous guy said, I don't remember the name, but you know, it, it's a big claim, but this is just to highlight how difficult it is really to pinpoint uh, certain causal mechanisms. But we, we know of certain causalities. Let me give you an example in markets, in financial markets. We know that a market crash will cause uh, implied volatilities to sp spike, up, spike up, but not necessarily the other way around. So if we see uh, implied volatility spike, not necessarily this has been caused by a market crash. It could have been caused by a variety of different reasons, causes. So there is certain directionality. For example, the thing which caused the, micro, the market crash might have caused the volatility to go up as well. They could have a, they could have a linked source. That, that's true, common cause or one cause can have different effects they can recombine and you know how how to model this and there is a mathematical technique that's been around for for more than 30 years uh, called called bayesian networks uh, which have nothing to do with bayesian statistics <laughs> i don't know oh, really well that's that's confusion upon confusion it's a confusion this is why when i try to speak about bayesian networks people tell me we already explored bayesian statistics and i say no it is something completely new but if you think in in, in financial markets how you predict risk you use you know uh, value at risk measures and they use correlation metrics. So they look at how historically the assets could move together and you can do whatever Monte Carlo simulation and project this co-movement in the future. But they're completely ignorant, these models, about causality. What caused these assets to, to move together in a certain way? And different causes can, can have different impacts. The way how assets could move in, in COVID was different than how they could move in during the financial crisis or, or during the dot-com bubble and so on. So how to model this? And basic networks are, are an excellent uh, tool to do this. Uh, now, the, how the, do they marry with, with alternative data? Uh, sometimes you have information about causal drivers, not in financial prices. So, for example, if you observe financial prices, you see they move. But uh, is there something external or exogenous that can explain why they move in a certain way? And, of course, uh, 20, 30 years ago, we had just access to Bloomberg, to some, some high-level financial feeds. Now we have access to a lot more information. So if you have access to a political uh, data stream, for example, you can follow the news. In political news, we know that drive markets, political statements, uh, can be also conflicts, invasion, uh, you know, all sorts of geopolitical risk, they drive markets. And now we have access almost real time to, to these uh, news providers. Uh, they use AI to, to classify the news, to track sentiment, to understand the topic, and the two data data sources, financial markets uh, data and news data can be merged. So a causality can be inferred, but you know, years ago, it was just an expert thing that you say, okay, if there is an election, markets are going to go down by whatever 10%. It was very expert-based. Now, thanks to the information world, thanks to alternative data, we can really understand the, the exogenous drivers for financial markets and model them better rather than just use the correlation metrics. So you can you can put it into numbers. What was previously you needed a, a kind of you know a forty year political analyst to 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 do. When did you become? How did you become aware that alternative data might be able to solve these kind of problems? How how did you how did how did alternative data come across your come across your threshold? When I 
became practically aware, uh, as I mentioned before, of alternative data. It, it was around five years ago. I had heard, but you know, when you hear something, you don't make the connection in your brain. You really start working and, and you said, you know, oh, we can use these data sources really to, to predict what's happening in financial markets. And my first project uh, 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 in, in 2016 was to predict the value of energy companies based on alternative financial data. So how is the value of a company calculated? Very roughly speaking, there are several approaches, asset-based, market value, and so on. But roughly speaking, assets minus liabilities. So liability is the financial debt. So we could get this information from from everywhere, from financial data sources. But what are the assets of the alternative, of, of sorry, of, of, of the energy company? This is oil underground. Uh, this is the pipelines. Uh, 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 this is, so this information came from uh, from from the side of IHS. So we had this information about the assets, length of the pipelines, material, number of wells underground, number of reserves, and from the market side we, we got the financial debt, which is the debt. So assets minus liabilities equals the, the value of the equity. At least is the book value. But but then but then you have to start thinking about um, the likely growth in the future as well in order to get the to get the market value. Uh, absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and and you have to discount that future value. So, what's the discounting rate? So, you you need to use interest yield curve, interest um, rate yield curve. So, you 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 have to get this data, and of course, you have to predict. You, you got it absolutely right. Uh, the the biggest value, the biggest driver of the value of energy companies, oil price. <laughs> Uh, so you must make a prediction of how, how, how this is going to, to evolve in time. And yeah, th- this was the tricky part. Commodities has a lot of alternative data drivers. For example, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to shipping firms um, who, who will be um, able to give you information about freight movements. Um, also, um, there are companies which, which like um, Ursa Space, which looks at oil um, the levels in in oil containers to to understand what what oil levels are and and, yeah, yeah. and what and forecast the oil price from that. So there are various alternative. I've come across various alternative data um, sources, and you might be using, for example, someone like Ursa Space's um, kind of satellite data yeah. to look three months ahead at what that might mean the oil price will be in three months, and then because that will be so important for um, the oil company in three months' time, then you can put a value on the oil company for three months from uh, like today based on the likely the likely future price. Am I following it correctly? Yeah, th- that's right. But again, it's it's very short term. When when you calculate the value of a company, it's you know it's from here, not next three months, but it's to plus infinite in, in discount back. Uh, uh, so to your point there, yeah, I, I ventured myself personally and we even deployed a product called Commodities at Sea which tracks where oil is, uh, what part is in floating storage, what part is going where, and there are some key specific routes around the world, you know, especially the route coming from the Strait of Hormuz in, in, in near Saudi Arabia and in, in Iran. It's, it's very crucial to how things will move. But uh, what we find is actually the spread of the whole future curves, that it's predictable. Any link to the fluctuation of oil prices really uh, uh, short-lived. So, uh, at least from my experience, predicting you know oil price uh, in the future is 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 really it's, it's very difficult. You you can always use a short-term model, which we did in the end, and then you can assume certain uh, mean reversion, 
And again, again, you have to do sensitivity analysis. And in the end, you get the company value with an uncertainty interval. You'll never be able to point to the last dollar, but you know at least the direction where it's, it is moving. You can't be too exact. Was there a, um, do you play, because obviously with oil, um, there are huge geopolitical uh, implications as well in terms of Libya, for example, in the past 10 years, what's been happening in Libya has been what a lot of oil traders have been watching because there's a lot of potential for oil to, to come online or go offline based on what happens in the Libyan civil war. Um, is there a way, Did you were you taking that into account? Uh, there are, for example, alternative data, uh, geopolitical streams like a data miner or someone like that. Um, do you, was that of use or was that too, well, did that play into the model? They did not play in the model, but it, it's a good point. Uh, uh, but, you know, again, I think modeling is much more tricky than, than modeling uh, other markets. And mm. all the data that we use, we found very uh, weak signals, uh, apart from the on the on the spread on, on the oil futures curve. So, you know, and you, you're running into meteorological problems as well, because you more more sources using, of course, more variables you have. So how to approach this methodologically, it, it's another problem. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes you don't have the solution in, in the data uh, uh, that you have. You always must call in an expert to, the, to do so. So to answer the question, you know, uh, all price prediction is a long-term project. And it has many drivers. It depends also on the consumption, on the temperature, on the weather, so the heating season temperature as well, which you cannot really predict that, that much with, with that accuracy. Uh, depends on geopolitical events. Uh, mm. it, it, it depends also on freight rates as well. There, there's so many factors. And consumption. I mean, you know, the, the consumption of, of, of and and what China is going to be doing in the next three months in terms of construction and, and whether the whether the Chinese are all going to get in their cars because it's Chinese New Year in January. You know, all, there's a million. It's it's the whole of human life. And COVID, basically. of course, impacted on our prices oh, as yeah. well. So pandemic. As well. So it, it's a very tricky problem. But uh, Nevertheless, sometimes if you want to have something rough, like the company val relative value of different uh, oil companies, you don't care that much, really, as long as you, you, you rank them correctly and you give like sensitivity, uh, do sensitivity analysis and give, give intervals of around devaluation. You can trade on this data. If you know that, you know, Exxon is more than uh, Shell, of course, you can devise on, on trading strategy if the market is mispricing the, the, their share price. So you never pinpoint. Yeah. Do you feel do you feel there are big um are there are there like so you were doing this as a project at IHS yeah. oil oil like uh, forecasting the price of oil was not your was not your day job it was a kind of it was a it was a project. one of the many daily jobs one of many day jobs exactly <laughs> yeah. but do you feel are there have you did you come across in the market are there companies which do try and do this all day long in order to try and predict the oil price is is that a is that a is that a company model I'm I'm not I'm not at the cutting edge of commodities trading so I don't know if if that is if that's what they do, you know, your your big oil trading companies are they are they are they taking all these alternative data sources and trying to predict consumption, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in order to do that, or is that was did you feel is it was it a bit of a you know it was a bit of a a, a proof case for you, but not a viable business model? Yeah, it, it was proof case for me. Uh, whether other companies are doing that, of course, they have their balance models, and you know, for a long time, it's not new. I'm not aware of anybody being successful in incorporating uh, 
alternative data. This is okay. my knowledge, of, of course, and my yeah. experience. But uh, what people claim they do and what's really done, it's, it's, it's sometimes different. And in the latter, it matters. And I haven't come across uh, anybody. But, you know, to the best of my knowledge, which can be quite limited, of course. There's a new book out by two Bloomberg authors about... Um, about the oil oil markets and, and and commodities trading, so I might have to read that in order to um, in order to answer it. It's called the World for Sale. If anyone if anyone is interested. Okay, <laughs> anyway, so um, so that was just one that was just one project you're working on. Um, I'm intrigued. You're at you're at IHS. What what was your um, what was your role in the market? Who are you who are you who what were you doing this for? Who are you selling it? Who are you selling this product to? How is it how is it working? Yeah, many clients were really interested in it. It's uh, mainly financial markets, and but also commodity traders. Yes, yeah, so we, we 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 had quite a few commodity traders uh, uh, around the world. But yeah, mostly in the trading space. Uh, so given that you know that was an alternative data company, and previously the the market base of market was financial companies. So the question is how to bridge the two and you know service uh, financial services clients. With, with augmented insight. So this was the use case. And of course, funds, asset managers, uh, hedge funds as well, uh, their clients. But what, what is important maybe to say, it's the different degree of sophistication of the signal that you're selling. So you can start selling raw data and uh, the most sophisticated players will be happy with just raw data because they want to put their hands on the data and create the insights themselves, especially if they have many PhDs on board and it's, it's hedge funds, so they can do this themselves. And you have less sophisticated players, of course, they don't want the raw data, don't, they, don't, they don't have the person power to, to extract insights. They just want to consume the, uh, the, the insights. And the question was then how to create the signal factory. So you can see the input alternative data, very raw data. Then you have the transformation of, of the data in something that, that's less raw. It means that you have to clean the data, remove outliers, uh, get the metadata right. Uh, and then you have the next, the next stage, which is how from this clean data, you can distill certain factors, trading factors. Uh, you know, they're the traditional factors like uh, uh, value, momentum in, in, in trading space, but how to create alternative data factors and how, how to sell these factors so that the client could combine these factors in, in a trading strategy. And of course, the, the last piece of the offering is providing the investment strategy uh, um, uh, ourselves in the form of smart beta index. So it's an index that's informed by alternative data not just market prices, and can be used as a benchmark. You know, hedge funds will rarely buy a strategy for, from a data company, but it was very useful to have to have a, a, a benchmark where, where their strategy performed as well as a, a very similar uh, smart beta strategy. So according to the level of uh, transformation of the data sophistication, you have different types of clients. So smart beta is essentially, um, it is, trying to so so beta is essentially the way the market moves so if you're trying to track um you know the the nasdaq or the FTSE 100 then that's just a, that's just the beta of the of the market smart beta is trying to inject a little bit of thought into that yeah it, it let's call it an it's an enhanced strategy where, where you don't use for example a market index like take the s p 500 it's market 
market cap weighted. You know, each company contributes according to, to the market cap. You know, small companies contribute more to the index and, and, and vice versa. So this is a mar- the only factor there is the market capitalization. And as you said, many passive funds, they, they, char- they track the, the S&P 500. But can you have other factors uh, uh, other than uh, the market cap to augment that that uh, that index? And there is the famous, you know, Farmer Frame French uh, theorem where they use different factors. So they use also size, for example, and they can they prove that if you devise a strategy based on that factor, on these three factors, you can outperform uh, the market index. And smart beta unlocks, in alternative data, unlocks many more potential factors, not just factors extracted from company balance sheet, but also uh, uh, different factors. You know, we devise, I'll give an example, an automotive, automotive smart beta strategy uh, with the usual, you know, uh, culprits, uh, market cap, uh, size, and so on. We incorporated factors like loyalty to the brand, you know, which is an information that we stored in our database. Uh, factory utilization, things that are alternative data. This was, this was production data that yeah. we incorporated in the financial index in the end. Loyalty to the brand. How are you? What alternative data streams would would give you loyalty to the, to an automotive brand? It, this was based on on survey data, so uh, mm. it's, it's monthly survey data or quarterly. I don't uh, record the frequency, but. Uh, People are asked how loyal to the brand. Would what would be your next purchase? Would you purchase the same brand or not? And this is compiled very similar to the PMI indicators. They're survey based, but you know they're alternative data method to collect information about the future GDP. Okay, so rather than just as you say, rather than just go by market cap, you are also injecting soft factors in order to increase. The, the car companies which have got more loyalty according to your alternative data potentially um, in order to and so you will more heavily weight those and you could you could presumably also do that massively for ESG as well which is obviously such a big a, yeah a big exactly. thing of the exactly. moment yeah. so more use cases I'm, I'm these are great these are really good um, alternative data use cases have you got any have you got any more yeah uh, I, I mentioned surveys is something that's very important so we dedicate one chapter of the book to to surveys. And if you're a discretionary asset manager, of course, you don't want to buy an entire set, a data set, you know, on all companies for the world, you know, which is costly. If you're focused, let's say, on, on 30 equities that you follow in your portfolio. So, of course, you have Bloomberg data, you can read news data uh, about this, uh, uh, this company. But what if you want to assess the health of the company on ground? So I participated in two projects. Uh, one was to assess... Uh, um, the footfall in a Brazilian pharmaceutical chain. <laughs> uh, so what we did with this, this startup, uh, Grape Data, we sent people on the ground to, to assess the footfall. <laughs> so they collected information, hundreds of people. When you say when you say pharmaceutical, do you mean a retailer? Yeah, sorry, the, the pharmacist, not, yeah, the, the retailer. Pharmacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or okay. for example, a, a game was about to be released in, in China by Tencent. Uh, so we wanted to predict the sales of this company, so we recruited around 1,000 gamers in China. I asked them, are you going to buy the, the, this new version of the game that's going to be released next month? And according to the answers, we, we, we managed to predict the sales of this company with, with a good accuracy. Of course, in China, we have also a political component that drives companies, uh, but that was pretty accurate. But I'm intrigued, Alexander. Like usually, so alternative data sits alongside, it's it's a kind of buzzword to follow big data um, in terms of, you know, we've got all these vast quantities and, and where the world was was um, shouting about big data in 2014, 
potentially they're shouting out about alternative data now as the as the sexy phrase. But I um, I'm intrigued by your talk of doing a hundred hundred people surveys because that doesn't seem like big data at all. Do oh, you no, see no. alternative Do you see alternative data as being qualitative qualitative as well as quantitative a lot? Uh, yeah, so alternative data is not necessarily big data. It can be also small data, of course. So mm. they don't over, over there is an overlap, but they're not, you know, uh, uh, fully overlapping. So alternative data can be uh, uh, small data as well. Yeah, I agree. There is this misuse of the term, you know, big data equals alternative data equals big data. But we find a lot of insights in, in small data. And small data comes with certain advantages, you know, like the surveys you can commission when you want. Uh, they, they're, they're pretty cheap. So if you cover one equity, you don't have to buy an entire data set can, that can cost quite a lot. But, you know, sending people on the ground, especially in emerging markets, was quite cheap way to do to make a prediction when we did it in 2018-19. So, yes, survey data is uh, but is undervalued. But as a trained as a trained statistician, do you not have a wariness of of small surveys because it's all about quantity and it's all about large numbers in order to be able to draw inferences? Don't you feel like if you just got the wrong hundred people, then you're a different hundred people, then you could have had a very different result? Okay, that's a very good point, and this also applies to political surveys. So, the problem is not the number of people. You know, greater than thirty, the law of large number applies in statistics. So, but it's a, yeah. the question is to get the representative sample. That, that's yeah. crucial. How you select the people? So there are many funneling methods. You know how to create a survey, and of course you have to get the right the sample. If you have one hundred observations, you can have still confidence, or at least get the direction of where, where things are going. And you can devise a strategy long and short, as simple as that. Uh, but still, uh, you know, this is possible due to technology. To recruit, uh, let's say, 200, 300 experts and send them in Brazil or in, in some desert to take pictures of the pipelines of an oil company to assess the health of this oil company, is possible thanks to, to mobile devices and technology, because you can get really a picture of these assets of the company, they, no, people go there, they take pictures. You can really understand. So it's it's really impressive. I'm really impressed how quickly these networks can be mobilized in a matter of seconds, and mm. you can get results. So you can, if you're a discretionary investor, this is a really a boon uh, uh, for you. Instead of taking the plane, going to, you know, to inspect some plants in in Saudi Arabia or any other oil producing company, you can really have scouts on the ground and you even save costs uh, uh, on doing that. So what you're saying is that there's there's hope for people after all. The robots aren't going to take over everything because you still <laughs> need the people. You still need the people to fill in the surveys and take photos of, of pipelines. Oh, definitely. So when it comes to investment, at least I have my philosophy. So AI is good to extract features, you know, from alternative mm. data, count number of cars, extract sentiment, understand the topic, the topic of a text. But when it comes to combining these, these factors, you know, together and devise a trading strategy, at least my, my opinion is that the good old linear regression works perfectly fine. It, it, you know, if you start going deep, the deep learning routes, of course, you read you need a lot of data. Financial markets are non-stationary. Uh, until you accumulate the data, markets will have shifted. Uh, uh, you know, then you have problems. They're not transparent. You really don't understand what you're trading. So yes, AI is good to, to extract features from data, unless they're service, because that, that's human-based data. But if you if you want to count number of cars, of course, you need convolutional neural networks. <clears throat> 
for example, once you have the number of cars, you have to interpret what to do with this number and create a strategy, of course, that is simple as possible. Um, I'm interested, Alex, uh, very interested in the fact that you are, um, you've, as I say, you had a background um, in mathematical finance and um, you are now, you've been a lecturer at, or you were a lecturer at Oxford was, yeah. um, uh, until January this year um, in mathematical finance um and the the title of your um of your segment of your of your um module is um graphical models in financial applications and alternative data the fact that you began teaching in february 2015 and you tell you've just told me that you didn't hear of alternative data till about 2016 suggests that alternative data wasn't always part of your your teaching curriculum at um at oxford so i mean i'm intrigued as to how um, how that entered and how, yeah, what was the demand coming from Oxford? Was it, was it, did it, did it come from you? How do you, how do you integrate alternative data into your teaching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good spot. <laughs> Very good spot. Yeah. Uh, we renamed the, the, the course was on graphical models, which is causality, essentially. Graphical models are based on networks. And this was course on causality, how to use causality to, to do stress testing or prediction in financial markets. And around 2018 or 17, I don't remember, I told to the organizer of the, of the master's guys, there is something called alternative data. Do you think it's a good idea to, to innovate? You know, we've been doing derivatives pricing for so many years. Okay, I'm doing these causal models now, but you know, shall we miss ride this wave or miss it? And they said, good idea. So we started experimenting back in 2018 was the first module on alternative data. Uh, then we repeated it. We got really good feedback, really good feedback, essentially. Uh, unfortunately, the master program closed completely. Uh, uh, and, you know, the, the focus of the world shifted from more a kind of stochastic processing, derivative pricing, Q measure world uh, to, to more P measure, more to machine learning. And, you know, the, the tool at the time was MATLAB. So we used heavily for derivatives. This was the culture of, you know, of the front office banker. Now it's shifted toward, towards Python and R. So the world has changed uh, uh, quite quite a lot. And uh, Well, so Python, Python killed mathematical finance? No, MATLAB, sorry. MATLAB killed. I, I don't want to make any commercial statements. What I want to say that we, <laughs> you, you, it's an excessive word, but you know we all use MATLAB to do derivative pricing. It was very powerful when it came to Monte Carlo simulations. Now Monte Carlo simulations are less of use, you know, as of today in the type of modeling we do. And, and Python exploded, you know. So now the tool of choice is, is of course, uh, Python. Uh, but I don't want to, to, to say anything. That's fine. You know? That's fine. <laughs> I respect fine. MATLAB. I grew on, on MATLAB. So I, it's a software that fully respect. Yeah. I, I'm intrigued that you've been teaching alternative data to Oxford students from 2018. I wonder if you've seen any of your students turn up in alternative data. Has there been, Has have you been seeding the market which now surrounds us? Are you still in touch? Are you Are you seeing that happen? Uh, I see more traction on causality. You know, I, I usually give homework for to, to students, you know, and they always 
do the causality assignment, let's say, because you know, for students accessing alternative data and making homework, it's it's, it's really difficult. So more theoretical, better on the theoretical side. Yeah, and then, yeah, I laid down the foundations of alternative data and, and connected problems. But you know, on causality, you can experiment with a lot of data that's already financial, or you do expert-based stress scenarios. You know, uh, that, that, that's easier. But when it comes to alternative data, tell to the student you have to get like a satellite images. You know, it, it's it's even tricky for an institution you not know, to negotiate a contract. So there there was not. Of course, there are some public data sets more now uh, than at the time but yeah just to answer your question you know the causality was the strongest point of the course alternative data was was starting at the time uh, i was doing introduction essentially preparing for my for from for my for my book to come uh, uh, later but it's a nascent few it's it's a nice it was a nascent few hopefully you know now now, now things are changing but i haven't seen around you know maybe just in new york university uh, uh, there is a course on alternative data so the program of peter comb there uh, but I, they're the pioneers innovators in this space but i haven't heard of any other uh, courses uh, which is a gap to be filled, which is a gap to be filled, definitely. A lot of work for you to do, Alexander. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of a lot of work to do, um, obviously, we've we've name-checked the book of alternative data. You've said um, to me in a different forum that um, the book of alternative data already needs updating because we're in such a, we're such a fast-moving field yeah. um, in alternative data that it was published, what, middle of 2020, and it already feels like you need to release a second edition to to kind of bring it up to date with all the. Um, but you know, I must say for you, for for all the listeners, it is definitely worth buying as it currently is as well because it's a wonderful grounding to alternative data. But if you do uh, release a, a second edition, um, what would you what would you put in it? What is what is what has come to the alternative data market since mid last year? Uh, the uses of alternative data, I would say so. Um... Private equity space, no, and corporates are starting to use more and more alternative data. So there are more use cases, definitely, in also public sector. <clears throat> uh, for example, you know, massively during COVID-19, uh, the government tried to understand where uh, the society and the economy were heading to. And they massively used alternative data uh, uh, to now cast GDP, for example, uh, and, and other macroeconomic figures. Uh, so the usage really took off uh, since last March in, in the last year. In this, in my job as well, uh, so I worked for, for Deloitte. Uh, uh, now we're seeing a lot of traction in credit markets. So how to augment, you know, usually we, the most fascinating case, at least for me, it's, it's, it's investment world, of course, but there is a lot of business coming from, from credit, you know, credit loan granting. Uh, also from the insurance space, you know, how you price in a fair way, more fair way on insurance policies based, for example, if you have a home near a fire station, of course, it's more protected. If it's far from the river, you know, the, the chance of flooding is, is is smaller. So how do you take all these different data sets uh, on security in nature and combine them together to understand what is the risk, let's say, to that property? Or for example, I'll give another example. So in the UK, for example, 8.3% of the population, it's financially excluded. They don't have access uh, uh, to credit. Uh, and these are not necessarily people uh, who are uh, less advantaged than, than others. For example, when I came in the UK to work for the Royal Bank of Scotland 10 years ago, I applied for a credit card uh, with the Royal Bank of Scotland, but I was rejected. 
you know, because I was new to the UK and my credit score was zero. So it did not exist. So for more than one year, I, I couldn't get a credit card. I couldn't get a, a, um, a, a, a number, a phone number with, 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 with Vodafone at the time they, because I did not exist. But I didn't exist according to these official uh, records, which are the, the credit score, but I existed, you know. So alternative mm. data comes here to help, you know, to detect my other types of activity, maybe other countries I lived in, uh, my social activity as well, and put it together to assign an alternative credit score. And, you know, in China, this is already the practice <laughs> and financial, they're wow. using that. So there are many use cases, really, that I would write about in, in the book. So it's coming, it sounds like um, you, you see alternative data really kind of embedding itself in society it's not just a financial markets thing it's it's something which governments are using to understand what's happening in their in their society and also everyday people are seeing their alternative data used in order to create more possibilities for them in this case getting a getting a loan but it's it's kind of it's spreading out to um to the general public and to the to the whole system rather than being a kind of niche way for 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 for, um investors to make money Absolutely. I can give another example. There is a lot of speak about fair AI, transparent AI, and we'll see a new European law being published next week on the 21st. But yesterday I got hold of a leaked paper, which is already in Twitter, so it's public, of what this new European law is going to contain. And AI is going to be regulated. You know, they, they'll divide AI in different categories, uh, uh, high risk being the, the, the most scrutinized category, which is uh, uh, going to be regulated. And whenever AI is, is used to take to, to, to make decisions, these decisions must be uh, a fair decision and they, they must be transparent decisions. And for example, in, in credit scoring, already the GDPR Article 22 uh, told banks, if you grant a loan, and the applicant wants an explanation, you have to explain. So if you mm. summon explainable, why well, you have to really to, 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 to explain, to make it, to make it uh, uh, explainable. But in order to be fair, let's reason, what do you need? You need more information uh, about the person. So for example, if you're pricing an insurance policy, you, sh- you should avoid putting explanatory variables like the gender of the person, male versus female. No, these are protected attributes, but nevertheless, you want to come with a fair price, you know, uh, so you can add other information coming from uh, from alternative data. There's a lot you're say, you're saying here, Alex. Like oh, yeah, the sure. so first, yeah, I'm just trying to I'm just I'm taking stock a little bit in that. Um, so talking about fair AI, um, one problem is that um, if you put all the variables in, for example, whether to to grant a loan, then AI might look at your. Um, they might look at all the previous loans that are defaulted and found that a lot of them came from a certain part of town or people who lived in a certain part of town and i think i think there was a racial aspect in terms of um, in america that um i think there was a case where uh you know the black part of town had seen more defaults because there was more poverty and so as a result if you lived in the black part of town you were less likely to be granted a loan so there are there are considerations where the male female one is another excellent example where do you want to be judged on whether you should get a loan based on the fact that more men or more women in the past have defaulted um it's a it's a problematic potentially problematic area which is where you where you're talking about fair ai then alternative data can help to, to solve this issue because of course race is, is not underlying driver of, of, of credit default 
but can be, for example, let's say medical conditions, you know, mm. and how do you get hold of medical conditions data? This consider alternative data. You need to access medical uh, registry. So uh, one of uh, the people on our team did a research thesis with, again, with University of Oxford. So there, there is, is a company that uh, uses AI, looks at the number of typos you do when you, or, or when you, type in an application form to apply for credit, they count the number of typos. And if you have done many typos, they just reject the application. But let's think, is it a fair? And how we can make it fair? What are the underlying drivers of people uh, making typos in application form? Can be because, of, of course, the person is not well-educated. Can be because the person is foreigner like me, or maybe because the person is dyslexic. So should you deny loans to dyslexic people? No, but you don't have a way to understand what is the driving cause of this, this uh, type of typos being made. But if you had access to alternative data, you can understand whether the person is a foreigner, uh, whether the person is, you know, is dyslexic, dyslexic or has other, uh, um, uh, other disabilities. So you can come with a fair decision. So this is how alternative data a plugged in, you know, can be the real causal driver. And when you speak about causal driver, this is means that it's 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 a fair decision in the end. I think this is a really interesting development for the health of the future of alternative data, because um, a lot of um, personal information and alternative data around people um, has thus far been used for ways that people have found negative. And yeah. I'm thinking of advertising. People feel like they're the product um, because advertisers have used alternative data in order to, 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 to target them. And so as a result, a lot of this stuff you know, there's 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 legal questions. There's there's a lot of regulation possibilities because 2015, 2016 made people uncomfortable with Cambridge Analytica, etc. What you're describing is actually alternative data um, creating possibilities for people where at the moment doors might be shut for them, for example, to get a loan. Yeah. Actually, if they make their alternative data available to a bank or to, to, to a repository of alternative data somewhere, then they may find that they are getting more opportunities in life than they would have otherwise, exactly. rather than just just opportunities to buy a toothbrush that they didn't know they wanted in the first place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got completely yeah. right, 100%. Yeah. So uh, alternative data to create opportunity, it's not just profit maximization for, for asset management, but of course for the wider society. So for financial inclusion, uh, having fair prices on loans and, and, and insurance policies, uh, making governments better understand almost in real time how the economy is moving and making quicker and, quicker and better informed decisions. So the use cases are many, many, you see. So if I have to rewrite the book and most probably I'll do that, you know, by the way, it's being translated now in Korean and in Chinese. So it's going to hit the Chinese market early next year. And by the time it hits it, <laughs> I need to start writing, hopefully, with, with Said again, uh, the second edition. And, you know, there have been also some developments on, on the platforming side. I can mention Snowflake, you know, mm. uh, it was not that uh, big at the time when we were writing that. Uh, people are debating pricing. You know, personally, I'm, I'm working on a data auctioning mechanism with some lawyers. We mention it in the book, but hopefully by the next edition, we'll see, you know, data being auctioned as well. So to determine a, a more, more a, a, let's say, a better pricing for, for data vendor. So there are aspects, you know, the research is ongoing uh, continuously and there is uh, much more to write about. 
Auctions are very, um, very hot in maths right now, didn't they? Didn't there, wasn't the last Nobel Prize went to um, went to two people who came up with an with an auctioning mechanism? I know you're ambitious, Alex, but uh, well, I wish you the best of luck with that Nobel Prize next year. <laughs> I'm too late for that. <laughs> <laughs> but then, uh, joking, joking aside, it was pleasure. Yeah, no, Alex, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on board. I've really enjoyed it. And um, and yeah, I'm l- looking forward to, to getting hold of my second edition of the Book of Alternative Data when it comes out. And, and, and best of luck with all your multitude other endeavors, because it sounds like <laughs> you've got a lot, lot on your plate. Yeah, thank you, Mark. It's really a pleasure to, to be here on your podcast. Uh, hope to continue engaging in the future, maybe when the second edition is ready to have a second version of this podcast, hopefully next year. <laughs> you'll be you'll be most welcome as and when, for sure. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Alex. Thank you, Mark. Have a great day. Thank you.